The New Testament reading this morning is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from Matthew. Hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts, so that we may truly understand an understanding that we may believe, and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Today we step into a mini-series over these next three weeks on the topics of faith, hope, and love. And these three are used by the Apostle Paul in his letters to highlight the indispensable qualities 
of a life of a Christian and the life of a Christian community. We situate our attention on faith, hope, and love in the midst of our summer series on the ties that bind us, the beliefs and practices that, as we take them up, make them our own and work together towards growth in them, we believe we will experience the unity that Jesus longs for us to know and that the Spirit of God is actually leading us into. Now, faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13 draws us to see these three qualities in the context of our life with God in the world and in the context of the promised future for God's people. N.T. Wright, a, a leading New Testament scholar, describes these qualities well as he reflects on them in this 1 Corinthians text. He says, Faith, which looks at the God made known in Jesus and trusts Him for everything, Hope, which looks ahead to God and what he will do in the future, which is already assured by Jesus' resurrection. And love, which will finally know as it is known and embrace as it is already embraced. Paul, in his letters, seeks to invite church communities to situate their life together as God's people in the context of of the secure love of God that shapes all of their relating, working, and being. And the faithfulness of God in Jesus and God's steadfast presence in their lives that warrants their trust and moves them into a broken world, taking meaningful steps to follow Jesus with new eyes to see the possibilities that he may be calling them into. And the confidence and assurance that God will follow through on his ultimate promises secured in Jesus' resurrection of a world made new where lives fully transformed by love are the only mode of existence. You see this reference to faith, hope, and love explicit in a few of Paul's other letters. For example, for example in Colossians 1, he writes in the very first chapter, in our prayers for you, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our focus today is on faith, the feature of a life with God that acknowledges our own frailty, our own lack of perfect understanding, the exercise of reaching or stepping out in trust towards God based on who He is, what He has done, and with eyes to see what He could do. It's in this cultural moment, though, our relationship to trusting another, whether it be another person or, inst- or an institution, uh, is complicated, to say the least. We collectively, and you and I personally, have brushed up against the real harm that is done when people and institutions break trust or erode trust, marriages that break down, friendships that fall apart, institutions that are exposed for having corrupt or oppressive practices, all of this makes dirty trust seem unreachable. 
And it is not fair to say that this problem is completely outside of ourselves, that we cannot trust anything other than ourselves. But in our moments of real weakness, we acknowledge we cannot even trust ourselves. Our own understanding of our present circumstance or our ability to move through it with wisdom, skill, and stability. If we are honest, we are often people in the practice of eroding trust, of struggling in our own weakness and failing to move forward. Here's the thing. Trust is a difficult commodity to establish and hold on to in human relationships and in the institutions and in structures we create in our society. We bring all of this, all of our own baggage with trust into the context of our life with God. Our sense of attachment to God, our dependence on God is shaped by the stories of broken trust and the defense mechanisms we have built to protect ourselves from the harms of broken trust. It is within that context and awareness that I hope you will be able to hear the good news of Jesus as one who is trustworthy, who re-narrates our lives according to his faithful work, and who shows us what God is like and invites us into a life of faith, a life of dependable relationship. The gospel text for today is a challenging and rich narrative of this dynamic of personal faith, the challenge of trusting wholeheartedly and the awareness that we need God's help for all of it. We are invited to observe in real time the disciples' interaction with Jesus and his presence and his pursuit of them. As we enter the story, the disciples had just experienced a full day with Jesus that would have left us all in awe and wonder. The feeding of the 5,000 from five loaves and two fish. Jesus looks on the large crowd with, uh, of people with compassion and invites the disciples to trust him as he miraculously multiplies food so that all eat their fill and there remains an abundance of leftovers. Is it It is at the end of this full and stimulating day that the disciples set out on the boat to go across the lake. Jesus stays behind, then sets off by himself after dismissing the crowds so that he may have his own time of solitude and prayer. Jesus living in union with the Father, cultivating a life that embodies faithfulness. The disciples in the meantime are on the boat pushed by the wind and the elements, battling a stormy night. In verse 24, it says, they were battered by the waves, far from the land, and the wind was against them. They had likely experienced like this a night like this on the water before, but after a day when they witnessed Jesus miraculously multiply food and show that he can be trusted, a day that stretched their understanding of what God could do through Jesus, You can imagine the conversations they had while on the boat, recalling all that had taken place and wondering about Jesus. After a full evening of the disciples battling the wind and the waves, Jesus starts making his way to them in the early morning. It is what is known as the fourth watch of the night, roughly somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So there might be some pre-dawn light, very, very little though. 
It's during this time that he walks on the water towards their location. And the disciples, seeing something off in the distance, coming towards them, they are terrified. Presume it is a ghost, and they cry out in fear. Jesus, seeing their fear and anxiety, speaks immediately to calm their hearts, to communicate he is with them, that they can take heart and know that they are safe. But he's still standing on the water, a supernatural sight that would cause wonder and awe. They are moved from terror to glory, from fear to wonder. It's in the midst of this that Peter, as he is known to do, speaks first and makes a request of Jesus, demonstrating a real mixture of attitudes. Peter says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. If it is you. Peter is still seeking to confirm that it truly is Jesus. Maybe Jesus' initial words weren't enough for him. Also, if Jesus goes along with this request, Peter would like to walk on the water too. He wants to know and experience the supernatural, the glory. Peter wants to be with Jesus. Peter is also ambitious and is always stretching and often blind to his own weakness, his own frailty, his own limitation. Jesus meets Peter in this mixture of attitudes, his uncertainty and yet his confidence, and Jesus says, come. So Peter with boldness steps out of the boat and starts walking towards Jesus. Jesus who feeds the 5,000, who walks on the stormy water, and who brings calm to the stormy hearts of the disciples. Peter fixes his attention on Jesus for his first steps. But then his attention is drawn to the strong, threatening wind, fear, uncertainty, insecurity, and failure to see Jesus pulls Peter under. In his failure and desperation, he cries out, Lord, save me. And Peter is confronted with his own struggle to trust and sees in Jesus the one who rescues, who delivers help. The text says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him. Jesus delivers him and while doing so, invites Peter to explore what is going on. Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I hear in this question, a tender invitation to grow in trust. Not a rhetorical statement to shame Peter, bring judgment to him. It's a question to bring curiosity to our doubts, to our wavering, to our hesitation. Jesus and Peter get into the boat and immediately the wind stops. And this is an echo of an earlier story in Matthew's Gospel of chapter 8 where the disciples are in the boat during the storm. Jesus is sleeping while in the boat with them and they wake him fearing for their lives. Jesus speaks to the storm and immediately becomes calm. This prior experience must have been in their minds and hearts as well as they were in the boat. As the calming of the sea, the disciples, at the calming of the sea, the disciples vocalize their awe and wonder, saying to Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. The disciples and Peter 
give us a glimpse into the life of trusting Jesus. Also, we see Jesus, His faithful presence, calling out trust, calming fears, providing rescue. As we reflect on this story, I just want to take a few moments to highlight three observations that invite us to inquire about a life of faith, a life with Jesus that is experienced as dependable relationship. First, I want us to see that Jesus is faithful. Second, that practicing a life of faith is challenging. And third, our journey into a life of faith is initiated and is sustained by Jesus. In looking at this story of Jesus walking on the water, a number of commentators on this, this text highlight several echoes to Old Testament language about God. He walks on water. He extends his hand to deliver. He saves from water. He calms the storm. In Psalm 18, it says, He reached down from on high. He took me. He drew me out of mighty waters. Jesus revealing God amidst the watery chaos, reaching out his hand to lift you up, calming the storm. This is what God does. As time moves forward, this is how the disciples come to know Jesus too. As Jesus draws closer to the cross, they witness the depths of which he is willing to go down, even to a shameful death, to extend his hand, to provide rescue through his glorious resurrection. Rescue from the mighty waters of evil, sin, and death. And we can look back on these stories of Jesus with the disciples and and much more that are in the Gospels and see his faithful way of being present in the midst of their confusion, expressing compassion, patience, and an invitation to further trust. Jesus embodies an undying love, a commitment, and offers himself to us as someone who can be trusted, a dependable relationship, one who through his faithfulness we are sustained. And yet, so many of us struggle with a life of faith. We struggle with confidence in our life with God. This is where I want to make a distinction about what we observe in this story with Peter. You hear the words of Jesus ask Peter, why did you doubt? And we wonder, what is Jesus getting at here? Yes, Peter wavered in his trust of Jesus while on the water, but was his doubting primarily about knowing the right things about Jesus? Or was it about having rational certainty that he would not fall if he just kept walking towards Jesus? This story invites us to a small picture of what is a common misunderstanding of how faith and doubt work in the life of a person that follows after Jesus. Often, especially among Western people shaped by the Enlightenment, we relate to faith and doubt in a way that sees doubt as an enemy of faith. This is because knowing is seen as the exercise towards rational certainty. And this has seeped into Christian understandings of faith and has wreaked havoc, bringing shame for those who honestly cannot in clear conscience affirm various aspects of Christian belief as stated. And this is deeply unfortunate. 
what Jesus invites Peter to, you, to and you and I to is not rational certainty about everything regarding God and Jesus, but rather relational certainty, a proper confidence in a faithful God, a dependable relationship. Even within the first Corinthians text, we see this dynamic with knowing. In verse 12, it says, now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Leslie Newbegin, a Christian thinker, church leader, and cultural critic in the second half of the 20th century, spent a good bit of his time writing and thinking about how Western Enlightenment people and the church have struggled with the life of faith because of this challenge of aspiring to rational certainty with our beliefs. In his book called Proper Confidence, which I would recommend, he, he writes about this challenge, and here's a sample of what he says. He says, if the place where we look for ultimate truth is in a story, and if, as is the case, we are still in the middle of the story, then it follows that we walk by faith and not by sight. If ultimate truth is sought in an idea, a formula, or a set of timeless laws or principles, then we do not have to recognize the possibility that something totally unexpected may happen. Insofar as our knowledge is accurate, we shall be able to predict the future. Future and past are governed by the same laws, the same principles, and the same realities. But if we find ultimate truth in a story that has not yet been finished, we do not have that kind of certainty, the certainty bound up within laws and principles. The certainty we have rests on the faithfulness of the one whose story it is, and we walk by faith. Jesus invites Peter to trust him. Not Peter's own understanding of what could or should happen based on the laws or principles he has observed in the world. Jesus invites Peter into relational trust. But herein lies the tension. We deeply struggle with relational certainty. It is difficult to entrust ourselves to another person. As I mentioned in the beginning, we have established all sorts of defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from the risk of relational harm, of broken trust. In Christian faith, a life of following Jesus is an invitation towards deeper trust. It's an invitation towards a dependable relationship. This can definitely stretch us out of our comfort zones, out of simply relying on our own understanding of how the world works, and rather entrusting ourselves to God amidst life's uncertainties. In Rowan Williams' book, Being Disciples, he highlights the way Christian faith is a move towards relational certainty as well. You see this on the reflection page in your bulletin. He writes, faith as dependable relationship is something other than the faith as a system of propositions or faith as confidence in my own capacity to master truth. It's much more a confidence that I can be mastered by truth, that I can be held even when I don't feel I can hold on. If my relation with the living truth is initiated and sustained by God's faithfulness, not mine, it is dependable. 
But recognizing that requires me to step back from confidence in my own resources. This sort of trust can push us beyond our perceived capacities. And I have seen that in my own life in two ways, and I'll briefly share two stories highlighting that. The first story highlights how I experienced the call to deeper trust, to expand my horizons, to open myself to the ways I could be a participant in God's world. It's the story of Lisa, my wife, and I moving to Philadelphia in 2009. We had our share of idealism about moving to the city and helping with the start of a new church. Neither of us uh, had ever lived in a city or fully understood the potential challenges that could be in front of us. And as we prepared to move, we gathered commitments of support from people and the church communities that we had been part of. People committed to pray for us, to provide financial support, to pay attention to what was happening in our life as we ventured out. And this was a deep kindness to us. People praying prayers of trust on our behalf, believing God was with us when we were being stretched in our trust, being the very means by which God met our needs at numerous occasions. We moved with the hope of finding jobs, and we were, were without jobs for five months. We ate through any savings we had during that span of time, and it was a time of being stretched, a time of inviting people to pray, a time of spending time praying, and of continuing the work of the church that was growing and being established into a beautiful new community. Lisa and I were learning to step out into each new day, each new week, trusting that Jesus was with us and that he called us into this work and that he would sustain us. Our horizons were expanded and we continued to trust God into new ways of understanding our ability to serve and to assist in this new church community that was beyond what we thought possible when we initially ventured out. The second story is more a reflection on the past three years of my life as a pastor. At a uh, just very transitional and transient time for the church, a story about needing to understand my limitations, to trust God and not my own perceived capacity to bring calm or stability. So living in Philly now for 12 years, I had, I had created habits and a way of functioning that allowed me to put my head down, just keep pushing forward. To be the steady presence who is not shaken by the changing circumstances or the challenges that the church was at the time sorting through. And it was in the midst of these past three years with changes that were taking place for Liberty Center City at the time that I needed to reassess my own ability to trust in Jesus. For me, I was working too hard, dwelling on work constantly and inflating my own sense of importance to influence outcomes that I wanted to take place. It was exhausting. I needed to learn how to stop, to rest, to trust. And it was during this time where I started to learn the importance of weekly Sabbath, of properly taking a vacation, of making space for solitude reflection, 
and a commitment to pursue greater self-awareness. To learn to hear the question of Jesus, why did you doubt? And to grow in my curiosity about my hesitations and wavering with Jesus. And to cultivate a desire to trust Jesus. This awareness is still very new for me. But the exercise of knowing how to slow down, to stop, to make space for rest is an ongoing pursuit for me. It's an exercise towards deeper trust. What I see with Jesus in this story with Peter is that our journey into deeper trust, a life of faith, is initiated and sustained by Jesus. Jesus immediately addresses disciples and their fear. He invites Peter to step out of the boat and trust him. When Peter begins to fall and cries out, Jesus immediately reaches out his hand to lift him up. And Jesus, with a tender invitation, invites Peter into a deeper trust. Why did you doubt? Don't you know me? The one who rescued you in the storm. The one who has healed the sick. The one who has fed the thousands. Will you trust me? Jesus invites all of us to know him as trustworthy, as faithful. And we will need to work through the ways we struggle with trust. When our horizons are expanded, when the circumstances of our life change, when the big questions confound us. But as we work through it, I propose that we will come to know Jesus as the one who delivers us in our fears, reaches out his hand to lift us up, and who's always inviting us to a deeper trust. I want to close simply by highlighting a few very practical ways Christians along the way have sought to cultivate trust in God. One is by bringing our doubts and our fears to God and not keeping them to ourselves. For Peter, as someone who has learned through being stretched and challenged in trust in 1 Peter, he writes, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's in the small things and the big things in life, taking time to be honest with yourself and bring your concern to God. When I find that I am awake in the middle of the night, I don't know if you ever do this yourself, trying to solve a puzzle regarding a meeting I had the other day or a project that is before me, rather than lying awake trying to solve that problem with irrational thoughts in the middle of the night, I take up the words of Psalm 23 and I repeat over and over again at a slow pace until I find myself asleep again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You are prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. 
even when I can't express with clarity the anxiety or turmoil inside, the Psalms provide a rich resource for bringing all of who I am to God in prayer. Another practice that people take up is simply practicing gratitude with God. Gratitude is simply about remembering well. It's about acknowledging that every aspect of our life, the air we breathe, the food we enjoy, the place we get to lay our head, the relationships we call our own are all a gift. If we take time to recall this regularly at the dinner table, as we wake up in the morning, as we have time to share with friends, we come to appreciate and move in deeper trust with the God who is the giver of all things. We develop a stamina and a vision to see God's provision and His sustaining work in our lives. And lastly, engaging in curiosity about our doubts. Jesus invites Peter and us with his question, why did you doubt? The exercise of seeing our own wavering trust is often the path to expanding our ability to trust, to move past self-reliance, and to move towards God's faithful presence and promise to be with us. Having conversation with a close friend, with a counselor, with someone you trust to explore where you are unsettled with doubt and in what ways you are being invited into a deeper trust that is stretching you. God is calling you to a deeper trust. He's calling me to grow in trust. Just as Jesus comes to the disciples on the water, God is pursuing you, that you may trust him with more of your life, that you may step out in faith. Resurrection Philadelphia, may we grow up in trusting Jesus with all of our lives. May we be honest about our doubts and create space for processing them. May we be a community that embodies dependable relationship in our world, a world starved of trust. May Jesus lead us and sustain us to extend his faithful presence in our city, our neighborhoods, and in our families. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.